0: Welcome to the McIver Report, Wisconsin This Week, zany introduction. Wait, you want me to do a zany introduction? (laughs) I thought Matt just read some boilerplate every week. I'm not going to do that. You're not supposed to read that part. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, I'm Bill Osmolsky, McIver News Director. Welcome to the McIver Report, Wisconsin This Week. Sorry Matt Kittle is out today, but we have two extraordinary interns here who will try to fill his shoes. (laughs) Introduce yourselves, extraordinary interns.
1: Hi, I'm Abby
2: Stru. Hi, I'm Jake Lupinow, and I think you might have oversold us a little bit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, only time will tell. And I'm also joined, as always, by our crack team of analysts <laughs> and investigators.
3: Ola Lasowski, Research Associate.
4: And Chris, Rochester Communications Director. Uh, here to remind you to do us a big favor and subscribe to the MacGyver Report on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and SoundCloud, so you get notified every time we post a new episode and we had some fans who said we could make it even easier to find our podcast. So now you can also follow us on Twitter using at And since we're always there to serve you, the good people of Wisconsin, uh, feel free to tweet at us with your show ideas or comments, criticisms. Uh, if you're a liberal Twitter troll, uh, stay away. Uh, <laughs> tweet at us with whatever's on your mind. We're, we like to interact with you. So that's at on Twitter.
0: Okay, first things first. What happened last week? Well, we're at the end of the 2017 2018 session, and over the past few weeks, dozens, if not hundreds, of new bills were introduced both in the Assembly and in the Senate. The legislature is not going to be able to pass all of them, and it isn't planning on sticking around Madison for much longer either. In fact, the Assembly says it held its final floor session last Thursday, which puts the Senate in a tight spot. It plans to meet again this Thursday, and it could meet again next month. So, If the assembly is truly done for the year, that means any Senate bill that hasn't passed in the assembly could very well be dead. However, assembly bills that haven't passed in the Senate still have a shot at becoming law. Let's take a look at some of the bills that made it through both chambers that are a win-win for taxpayers and lovers of liberty. Chris, I believe you've got the list. (laughs) Mm.
4: I do. Uh, We have uh, a a number of bills that are, like you said, moving through that, uh, you know, we can complain about silly season all we want, but there's a lot of good bills. Base budget review uh, being uh, one that we've been following for a long time. That's a Rob Hutton bill that requires agencies every few years to justify every last cent that they're spending in their their agency's budget. Groundbreaking. Groundbreaking. You know, funny thing, you know, uh, when you sit down and come up with your own budget and look at your own finances, you don't just automatically say, I'm going to spend more this year because I spent six, X, X amount last year. And so now the uh, the bill will hold state agencies to the same standard and ask them to actually justify what they're spending.
0: It was a great strategy when we were kids, though, for Christmas presents.
4: <laughs> <laughs> hey, bureaucrats love Christmas presents. There's a Christmas tree that just went through the Capitol right now. Uh, welfare reform, uh, of course, uh, we've been following this too, a package of... 10 welfare reform bills, nine of which made it through.
0: And this one is actually Ola's area of expertise, so we're going to let her tell us a little bit about it.
3: Yeah, so these uh, this welfare reform package of bills, they tackle uh, improving our public benefits system, and this has been a major focus of the governor, who called upon the legislature to hold a special session just on this issue back in his state of the state. Uh, that was promptly taken up by both houses with a package of 10 bills authored by Speaker Robin Boss and Senator Chris Kapinga. Last week, nine of them passed the Assembly and the Senate, officially moving them to the governor's desk. Some of those changes include an increase in the number of hours per week that an able-bodied adult must work or receive job training in order to receive certain benefits, such as food share, uh, requiring compliance with child support payments to get benefits asset restrictions for participation in certain programs, and uh, a whole series of of other bills rewarding the contractors of those job training programs who do a good job at getting their participants connected with employment, among others. So one thing I do want to note, some people might notice that this was originally a package of 10 bills that once all was said and done, last week came down to nine. And so I want to take a second to just explain that difference. One of the bills that was pulled would put photo IDs on food share cards in an effort to cut down on fraud and abuse in the system. Now, because of strict federal regulations, the state of Wisconsin would have to apply for a waiver from the federal government asking them if this would be OK to do. It actually is something that we've done in the past before. This this bill was passed in, in a in the state legislature just a couple sessions ago, I believe, and the Obama administration, DHS, of course said no. So (laughs) they they tried to go at it again uh, this year. But so my understanding is that this particular bill was tabled because the Trump administration is not quite ready for this change. They have actually indicated that they would be interested in something like this at the federal level. So if Congress changes the law first, we might not even need a waiver. So that's kind of just a wait and see issue they'll likely come back to it and they're gonna work with the feds in the meantime to to see where there's agreement on this so that we don't need to waste our time applying for waivers for rules that are about to change anyway
4: I'm really glad you explained that because I saw the Senate calendar I only counted nine bills Mm -hmm. so I thought maybe someone chickened out or something like that so there's there's, there's, that's a good explanation of it
0: I like how these bills actually are real reforms sure I, I, I tease lawmakers all the time and their staffs about how you know oh you've got another welfare reform bill let me guess you are going to apply to the feds for a waiver to conduct a pilot study because that's yeah. like how those things always used to, to right. play out but i mean these are actual real reforms that are
3: things are going to get implemented started right and away. implemented right here right now so yeah very very exciting stuff and especially all the news we continue getting with programs like fset which is the largest job trainer program uh, in the state, we now have more than twenty-five thousand people who were once receiving food share benefits who are no longer getting those benefits, and they have full-time employment thanks to programs like those. So we're uh, we're excited to to see what happens moving forward on this. Right, right.
4: and on the last check that we did with uh, the FSET program, some people were making about fourteen ninety an hour, I think it was.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the the data here is you know for again nerds like us, it's really interesting. It comes out every quarter, and they they show you county by county or not it's not county it's like district by right. district that, that they break it down by and you can see the the mean and median uh, salaries that some of these people are being paid and you know in, in plenty of places it's double the minimum wage so don't let someone tell you that this is them hating on the poor no it's helping connect people to actual skills that they're going to be able to use moving forwards so they don't have to rely on that benefits uh, check coming in
4: then like one last thing because this is such a consequential path Package of bills, maybe the most consequential package that's moving through. Chris Capengia, uh, uh, Senator Chris Capengia, who authored these uh, many of these bills in the Senate, all of them, I think, mm-hmm. um, said it best. He said, 97% of people who work a full-time job are not in poverty, and the only way to get out of poverty is not being on a government program, but to right. be in a job. Right. And so th- that's why this is so important. Not to, you know not, not only to grow the workforce and other. Uh, You know, abstracts, abstract things like that, but to help people to get them out of that cycle of poverty. Uh, Another uh, another bill moving along is the civil asset forfeiture bill, which has been years in the making. But this is a Dave Craig bill.
0: Yeah, and I would just uh, let me just read off what he uh, a tweet that he sent out today, or it might have been a press release. Anyway, uh, same thing nowadays. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Fifth I Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. I was just going to
4: say, that's really familiar. Yeah. Where did that come from? So well, that comes from the Constitution. So despite this being in the U.S. Constitution, Wisconsin had
0: a, a great law that kind of you know, completely ignored it for, for a very long time. Now, before this law got passed this, uh, last week... The police could auction off anything they took for, from you as evidence, whether or not you were actually convicted of crime. All they had to do was arrest you, and your stuff was theirs. Now the problem is innocent people were being acquitted, yet the police still got to sell their stuff. So the solution now is the police can only sell your stuff if you're found guilty of the crime. How novel is that? I know. It, so <laughs> it took how many years to get well? That you know that the. the, the the, the incredible thing about this. Now, in the Assembly, this was a voice vote, so nobody knows how anyone voted. But in the Senate, this is a roll call. And you would think this would be bipartisan. Every single senator would vote for this. um Believe it or not, there are 10 Democrats who voted against it. So, 10 Democrats voted so that the police could sell your stuff as soon as they arrested you, whether or not you were actually guilty of the crime. And they were... Buley, Carpenter Urbanbach Hansen Ringhand Risser Shackner or Schackner Schilling Taylor
4: and Vinehout. You know what's really concerning to me about this is when I'm when I'm down here at my apartment my senator is Erpenbach, and when I'm up in where I still call home which is Holman it's Schilling so I'm kind of I, I'm totally screwed either way.
0: I, I mean I don't know how you vote against this other than oh well, it's a Republican bills so exactly. I have to vote against I it. Mean, I
4: mean the partisanship this should be something that transcends partisanship and, if anything, possibly can. Um,
0: I mean, this, like, I don't know, I think this vote alone could open up all 10 of them for primary challenges. I mean, this would be great opposition stuff.
4: <laughs> this is this great. Is, it was definitely great bipartisan legislation. One of the interesting factoids that I've run across in the past is that I believe it's over the last 14 years uh, more people have – Lost more property, more dollars worth of property via civil asset forfeiture than by robbery, theft, mugging, home invasion. Oh, it was theft though. <laughs> it yeah. was just. I think,
3: <laughs> as I said last week, it's robbery just by another name. Yep, theft <laughs> by
4: another name, absolutely. All
3: right. And so, to, just to bring it yeah. back so our uh, listeners know what's going on, so where is that bill? I We know it passed Go, the Senate and it, it's done on the assembly, it's on Go the governor's, governor's desk. Yeah. All right.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So that that again, we've been that's been a long time in the in the in yeah. the making. So anybody who loves liberty should be celebrating that. Um, and another thing that we should always celebrate is uh, returning the taxpayer money to the people who earned it. So sometimes we don't always no. like the vehicle that it's done through, uh, and but uh, you know, in this case, we have a tax credit, hundred dollar tax credit, if you have a child for each child under eighteen living at home. And this was one of the things championed by Governor Scott Walker.
0: Well, and they did make um, a couple changes to this in the Assembly, right? Where um, if you if you really feel bad about getting that hundred dollars per kid, you could either elect to allow the government to keep it, or no, you, you could have it donated to one of ten charities. I I don't know what charities they picked yet, but you know those, <laughs> those are your two options. That, so we'll see how many people. I, I they, they I'm sure they did it so that they could you know. Have statistics about, you You're know, right. oh, well, you think nobody wanted this? Well, nobody said no to it.
4: Yeah, I mean, that's not the worst thing. Give someone, there's a list of 10 charities that you can check a box and say donate it to this instead if you, you know, can't, if you don't need 100 bucks. Or, or just some take people. it and
0: donate it to the charity you
4: want. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Why not? And then they also made changes to the governor's proposed sales tax holiday. So they the assembly said that a retailer can opt out if they so choose.
0: And I can see a lot doing it, too, because, I mean, we, we talked about it here where it's, I mean, you essentially have to reprogram your computer for the day. So if, let's say, uh, the, the example I've always i I've been using is you own a liquor store and somebody comes up... I wish. Yeah, and somebody comes up with a, uh, a thing of uh, a bottle of rum and a bottle of pina colada mix. Well, one of those is eligible for the sales tax exemption, the other isn't, and you had to... Entirely reprogram your entire system for you know those one or two days, so you can understand why a lot of stores might not be so uh, excited about doing that.
4: And it's and it's purchases up to a hundred bucks too. So if you go through and you really go hog wild at the liquor store or the you know the back to school <laughs> shopping <laughs> or hundred dollars, that'd be a, that'd be a light day. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of bottles of Grey Goose, so. but you know you save five five six bucks. Uh, what do you you know? And then you can go back through the line again. Yeah. Um, apparently, but, apparently, that's how,
0: That's what the uh, press corps in the Capitol was briefed. That, <laughs>
4: that was the uh, the. Well, you can just see what they're all gonna. You know, they're all gonna. They're gonna be the only ones in on that that game. They're gonna just go through and check out counter. You counted. can see your your Didn't local it, uh,
0: assembly person just. Uh, <laughs> Didn't I just offense? see you through here? <laughs>
3: And I think this uh, proposal is also one that had it went through kind of a couple different transformations and a couple different forms since it was introduced by the governor just last month. I think when he originally proposed it and this is also a similar state he proposed it in in last year's budget was that it would be a sales tax holiday uh, focused on back to school related items. Um, So it was kind of a very, very specific list on the types of things you could spend your money on. And I believe he had proposed it for, I don't know if it was just for this year, Um, but uh, yeah. So as as it is now, it will be the first weekend of August this coming year, and it will be on all retail items up to $100. So no more kind of, does this calculator work? Does this laptop work or not? It's just all stuff. Except no alcohol, no
5: uh...
3: right.
4: No cigarettes, no vices, none of the, you know, you can't get a discount on any of the good stuff, you know.
0: Yeah, so those of you out there without kids, I guess you're really.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's all we do. Yep, can confirm.
4: (laughs) So then you had another one of the things uh, having to do with taxes was uh, Representative Cuyanga's tax informity bill. We saw he tried to bring back uh, the governor's income tax cut idea. Mm -hmm which Ola is probably much more well-versed in all in how, <laughs> how, what that proposed than I am. But, yeah,
3: and we'll, um, uh, we can spend a little bit of time talking about that later this podcast, but as for tax conformity, so as I'm sure all of our listeners are well aware, we have a new federal law on the books. Uh, relating to taxes, <laughs> now that D.C. has changed its books, it's up to lawmakers in all 50 states to get their codes to line up. So lucky for us, CPAs and legislators, Representative Dale Cuyenga and Senator Howard Markline, wrote a bill to line up Wisconsin's tax code with the federal code. That'll save filers time and stress next year when they don't have as many differences between their two returns that they have to file. One of those really big changes involves something called 529s, Uh, which is also in my other portfolio of, of policy issues having to do with education. So that's a federal provision that lets individuals set aside money before taxes to use on certain educational expenses. In Wisconsin, that program is called EdVest, and it lets people save money for higher education. Well, the tax law passed in December by Congress lets people set up set aside up to $10,000 tax-free for K-12 expenses, and thanks to the tax conformity bill passed by the Assembly last week, that will also be true in the state of Wisconsin. So tax conformity is now on to the Senate, where it has to pass before moving on to the governor.
0: Okay, my turn. (laughs) (laughs) So, tort reform. Um, For those who have followed Wisconsin politics for a long time, uh, this was like one of the first items of business that, Governor Walker and the legislature put on the agenda when they when they first um, um, took over the majority way back in 2011. So seeing tort reform pop up again, you know, one of my first questions was, what, what was left? And apparently, uh, you know, talking to some of the people that were really uh, supporting this legislation, uh, tort reform is one of those jobs that never really feels like it's over because the trial lawyers always find another loophole and another way to kind of... Uh, Go around what you've just uh, what you've just implemented. So they are,
4: they are lawyers. They're pretty good at finding those, those legal <laughs> loopholes.
0: Exactly. You know, slick. You know, it is one of those words that comes to mind. So the, these reforms are two parts. One involved class action lawsuits, and the other was fishing uh, expeditions for evidence. Now, <clears throat> class action lawsuits. You have all seen the commercials. If you are suffering from <laughs> right. say mesothelioma because right. you served in the navy between nineteen seventy one and nineteen seventy two. You could be eligible for a big settlement.
4: That's a popular one, and you see a lot of these on like the, the let's just call it the programming aimed towards uh, older individuals. You know, did you did, did did this hip implant was it defective? All <laughs> yeah. that sort of thing. So
0: it turns out these lawyers they aren't looking for hundreds of people. They only need one or two, <laughs> and once they've got those two vic you know quote unquote victims, then they can go to the company and say, hey, look at look at look at Grandma Smith. Look at Grandpa Nelson. You guys are really good. This is going to really look bad for you. This is going to be a really long court battle. All they want is a settlement. So once they get that settlement, the victims get a little pittance and the lawyers get a lot.
4: So- Here's a, I've got a good example of this, actually, because it's not always just about uh, you know health conditions, mesothelioma, defective m- medical implants. But there was one that I was actually... Part of because I had a credit card, a certain credit oh, card well, between. So you've been
0: scammed on this. Well, uh, <laughs> I,
4: I got like seven bucks out of the deal, but you know, <laughs> I had a credit card between such and such years, and I had an opportunity to be part of this class that was, you know, they were suing the, the credit card company for to, you know. We're uh, giving people like you a credit card. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, basically, uh, <laughs> you know, it was like deceptive marketing or something like that. And, uh, I got seven dollars, uh, and everyone probably got like seven bucks or something. Yeah. And the lawyers got like I don't know twenty or thirty percent, which was millions and millions oh, yeah. of dollars. So th- this is this is clearly a system that's being abused and it's making some people really rich at the expense of of companies.
0: Yeah. So. The reform put in place puts requirements on the notification process. So I'm not exactly sure if that means no more of those commercials that we all love or those uh. love to hate. But, you know, that was one part. And then the other part was uh, lawyers that now will restrict uh, how large of a cut they can take once they get the settlement. So we'll, we'll see how, how much that does. And then the other part of these reforms was fishing expeditions.
4: This is, this is something I was not aware of.
0: Yeah, so uh, when a lawyer is suing a company they get to um, make document requests during the discovery phase. And one of the tactics here is they, the lawyer tries to make sure that the discovery phase never ends. So they just make document requests after document requests until eventually it's costing the company a fortune just to comply with in the discovery phase and they say, you know what, let's just settle and get this thing over with. So this reform is, is meant to put limitations on what those lawyers can request. They have to prove it has, it has something relevant to the case. And then a judge actually needs to agree that it's relevant before, you know, the company has to fork over those documents. So
4: um, I really liked the uh, the the way you put it in one of the excerpts explaining this bill that the lawyer's favorite pastime is fishing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because that's basically what this is.
0: Yeah. You you get your big settlement and then you actually get to go fishing for real.
4: (laughs) In in an extravagant yacht.
0: Yeah, that's right. Okay, then, um, all right, so I also uh, I also t- uh, cover the DOT, so let me talk real quick about the DOT reforms. Now, it's been over a year since the Audit Bureau's report on the highway program came out and, you know, found that current projects were about $3 billion over budget. Um, they recommended a ton of simple reforms, and a lot of them still haven't been implemented because, you know, we were arguing over the gas tax for most of the year. Well... One of them was uh, the DOT needs to co- submit complete cost estimates when asking for a project's approval. They weren't doing this. They weren't including inflation and engineering, and that was one of the reasons why project costs were ballooning right after they had been approved. Now, the auditors weren't weren't completely sure uh, all of the reasons why costs, you know, were you know three billion dollars over budget, but they thought that those are two really good ideas that would cut cut this down a bit. Just so,
4: imagine that for a second. $3 billion over budget. Yeah, like I mean, that's a projects. Huge, huge number. So, yeah. Right. So, I mean, this is a
0: really simple reform. Hey, you guys need to start giving us complete cost estimates. It's been over a year, <laughs> finally got done. And then the other reform, um, three projects for the next few years will be able to use a uh, system called construction manager general contractor method. All that means is the uh, company that builds the road will now be involved during the design phase of the project. Now, when it comes to bidding, one of the reasons why uh, vendors will submit bids that are larger than it probably costs to uh, complete the project, is there's a lot of uncertainty and risk, and they've got to try to hedge their bets against that. When you bring them in during the design phase, that eliminates a lot of the uncertainty and lowers the risk, and so they're all able to, you know, bid low, you know offer lower bids. And then the other thing is, because these are the people who are actually building the roads, they, they might know ways to kind of, you know, cost-saving changes that might not be obvious to the guy sitting behind the desk designing it on his uh, CAD computer. So uh, DOT will be able to use that, that uh, system for three at least three projects going forward for the next few years, and um, we'll see how it goes. It's uh, saved a lot of money in Minnesota and other places where they've tried it, so...
4: You know, uh, before the whole transportation debate really got heated up last summer, this was something I I never even thought of. You know, the way that a project is, is, you know, designed and bid out and eventually engineered and constructed, that there are reforms to that that can save dramatic amounts of money. People don't really think of the different methodologies that are used, but there are various ones, and this, this bill in particular kind of took me by surprise. I didn't hear anything about it, but we had talked about it extensively last year.
0: Yeah, I mean, not a lot of people understand, you know, uh, complex engineering, how complex engineering projects work, but, I mean, you've got the DOT, you know, really stays involved in this whole process. They, it's their project managers that are managing vendors, and so there's a lot of room for reform, a lot of room for more efficiencies. You know, a lot of people might just think, hey, we need a road. You uh, you know, you get a construction company to bid it and you know accept the project, and they go and they build it. No, the the government stays involved every step of the way, and you know that might be part of the reason why these projects are, get so complicated.
4: What amazes me about this whole as, okay, amazing amazes is the wrong word. What annoys me about this whole debate has always been politicians who are saying we have to make the hard choices and and they're in reference to raising the gas tax as if that's a hard choice but you look at your report on how Washington County um, decided to do its budget put roads at the top of the list in terms of priorities and you know make some actual hard budget decisions in order to make that their top priority and not have to raise the gas taxes that's what's that's the thing that is, is hard not raising the gas tax raising the gas tax is the easy solution
0: yeah and I mean there's a lot of you know misconceptions out there. I mean, the state is actually directly responsible for 10% of the roads in the states. So the other 90% belong to local governments. So they have to uh, implement their own reforms, budgeting, and you know set priorities to take care of their roads. You know the gas tax doesn't really cover all of that. So um, yeah, I mean it's it's a really complicated debate, and there's a lot of lot of uh, a lot of room to to build narratives, I guess you could say, but. Um these two reforms that you know the legislature finally, you know, I, I guess agreed to uh to implement that you know probably are they aren't, aren't really gonna cost the state anything and if anything can only save us money. So
4: right on
3: moving right along, uh, another bill that went another step further last week. Uh has to do with winery hours. This bill passed the assembly last week and it would let wineries stay open until midnight. Right now they must stop serving alcohol at 9pm. For many wineries this means that they can't legally host events such as weddings unless they want to shut down the consumption of all alcohol at 9pm sharp, which doesn't personally sound like any wedding I've ever been to. You want to hang out (laughs) in a winery without (laughs) any wine? Perfect. Yeah, exactly. So this is a great piece of liberty legislation. It's a get the government out of the way and let people live their lives legislation and for wine drinkers like me quite frankly this bill sounds like a great time it is now in the hands of the (laughs) senate where it must uh pass before moving on to the governor's desk it must pass (laughs) this must pass
4: (laughs) oh gonna be knocking on doors (laughs) (laughs) you know a lot of these bills have passed the assembly and the assembly has well they've kind of hit the road they're going back to their districts to campaign It's going to be supposedly a tough election year. But the Senate has at least one more floor session towards the end of March. So we're in this really weird period in between. I mean, we just had the the busiest couple weeks we've had in a long time, including during the budget. A few things that the Senate has to take up, uh, just one of them that really uh, sticks out to me, and this is in our latest rundown at McIverInstitute.com of of liberty legislation moving through this local employment regulations law. It's a law having to do with collective bargaining preemption. But what the bill really, it's kind of a confusing description for the bill, but what it really does is this bill, which is by Representative Rob Hutton, seeks to uh, prevent local governments from creating really a morass, uh, a nightmare red tape of employment regulations all around the state. So if you're the city of La Crosse and you think, and you're you're on the city council and you think, hey, we should have a $15 minimum wage in La Crosse, but then you're right to the north and on Alaska and you think, no way, we're going to, you know, all the businesses that shut down in La Crosse are going to move up here. We're going to keep our minimum wage at a a reasonable level. This law is trying to say, the state law supersedes any attempts at the local level to do stuff like that or to do other employment regulations like, you know, if you have kitchen employees, you have to pull Their schedules three weeks in advance, or or, you know stuff like that, Uh, and and what that that would if that if this bill was not proposed and did not become law, you could have that situation where if you're in HR and you're trying to run a company, you have to deal with this patchwork nightmare of employment regulations. The whole point of this bill is just make it uniform throughout the state, so businesses don't literally suffocate in in all the different rules.
0: Yeah, and I mean. The interesting dynamic, you know, that I, that I talked about a little, a little bit about earlier, is all the, the Assembly had their, what they, you know, they say they've had their final floor period. So, all the, all the Senate bills, you know, that they voted on, that's it, supposedly. So, what if the Senate passes some more of its Senate bills, you know, you know, from now to the end of the session. They're not going anywhere in this session. Supposedly, they aren't going anywhere in the Assembly. So, how motivated are they going to be to, you know, take on a lot of these Assembly bills? So, well, he, you
4: definitely have that intra-chamber battle going on oh, where yeah. there's, there's clearly some you know, hot pokers getting put in, in each other's eyes between the two leaders. Uh, but, you know, we, I mentioned the uh, preemption bill. There's also tort reform. Um, and quite frankly, I, did tax cuts pass both houses? that um they, they, they'll have
0: to send it back to the senate now that they
3: made all those now changes.
4: they made the changes yeah. okay so the senate's got some work to do
3: yeah and i think one of probably the biggest one's not one we've spent much time at all i think weighing in uh from from our perspective but the juvenile justice reform package that has made big headlines uh in in recent weeks that was championed by speaker robin voss and by the governor and uh, as recently as I believe this morning, Senate Majority Leader Scott Fitzgerald said, "I don't know that I'm there." And I mean, could be we're, a heavy lift. <laughs> could be a heavy lift, right? And so you know, for those of us who aren't as entrenched in kind of the the rules of all of it, this bill was already passed by the assembly it has to be passed exactly the same that exact same form has to be passed by the senate in order for it to legally move on to the governor's desk they cannot if they amend it or change it in any way on the senate floor the assembly has to come back and and concur it back in which the Speaker has said multiple times last week, we're done, we're out of here, we're not coming back, <laughs> which is kind of, it's a little bit of a deja vu from last summer, right. you know, saying this is our final day, we're passing our budget today, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, not so, not so subtly at the Senate saying, guys, if you change anything, mark this up consider it dead on arrival it's not going anywhere so that's a and i mean that one bonds i believe more than 350 million dollars yeah. over the next couple of years that is that's a right. massive massive spending package so we'll we'll see what happens with that one can't, we can't remember for the,
0: roads though. can't bond 350 million dollars <laughs> for roads though right i was I sure, just yeah. gonna say you Can remember the, prisons, though, that was it right.
4: was right about the number that <laughs> was uh, the kind of the, the heating point for how much should we bond and how much, you know, during it's the transportation debate. <laughs> sure. So, yeah. Well, well. You know,
0: nothing makes money like a prison. <laughs> well, <laughs> um,
4: all right, so while well, the legislature yeah.
0: winds down, unions around the country are getting fired up. The UAW, for example, has started an aggressive new membership campaign. Matt Kittle interviewed Josh Hare, a top draft pick for the United Auto Workers.
6: Josh Hare started in the pottery department of Kohler Company seven months ago. He said the harassment and intimidation from the union representing the factory employees began immediately. Hare, 24, didn't want to join United Auto Workers Local 833. He didn't see the value. The UAW union steward and the union's president didn't care for Hare's answer. Josh Hare joins us on this morning's uh, podcast. Thanks so much for being here, and how are you faring so far, Josh? I'm good. Good. Take us back, uh, because as we've reported at uh, MacGyver News and has been reported now uh, over the last several days, pretty much when you began at Kohler Company, that's when (laughs) the folks from UAW... uh, Local 833, approached you and said, hey, it's time to join the union. Take us back to those early days, please.
7: All right. Well, basically, the union has your first 90 days to get you signed up for the union. Um, So those first 90 days, you have um, all the stewards who uh, will pressure you kind of to get you into the union. Um, I wouldn't say harassment. They're just very, uh, very... Try hard to get you to join, uh-huh. um, but after that, I went to the head union steward and he asked me um, again if I wanted to join. I was like, you know, I'm really not interested. Um, don't see what it has to offer. <laughs> and uh, so right away, he's like, well, we can't we can't protect you from harassment. Then then just walked away. That's and what and, he uh,
6: said. He turned to you and he said, uh, well, that's too bad. We can't protect you from harassment. And when he said we can't protect you from harassment. Did he really, in your mind, did he he really mean, we can't protect you from us?
7: Yeah, it could be. I mean, I haven't had anything from any of the workers, really. It's all been um, the union presidents and stewards (laughs) I've dealt with. Mm. Um, So, um, but immediately after saying that, he went um, through the rest of the pottery building and announced to everyone that was around that I hadn't joined the union and decided to not to. (sighs) Um, (laughs) So... Um, after that, uh, I was quiet for a bit, but then i uh, just be uh, him tossing me some sign up sheets and union cards and whatnot. Um, kept telling me to join and everything. Um,
6: but he wasn't going to take no for an answer, right?
7: No, they definitely do not take no for an answer. They're very persistent in uh, trying to get people to join. Um, and then come around right before Christmas time, I had Tim Taylor, the president, come up to me. Um, and we had had a conversation, um, while I was at work then, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm uh, trying to get me to join, um, you know, and I just kind of battled with him a little bit, told him, uh, why I wasn't interested and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then he had left. And then after that, I still got, um, from the steward, he would still hand me sign-up sheets all the time you know, asking me to join, telling me I should join. Um, and then I got a phone call from Tim Taylor uh, what, two weeks ago now? Um, and he had called me while I was at work, uh, asking me again if I wanted to join. I was like, no, I'm very much not interested in joining, you know, thinking they would have uh, gotten the point at this time. Yes. <laughs> um, and then... Uh, he kept going on about, you know, the benefits of the union and why I should join. Um, you know, I'm really not interested, don't want to join. He's like, well, you know, people don't really like when you don't join the union. I um, said there were two other people from the pottery building that hadn't joined, and nothing good happened to them. Um, wow. But I was basically done at that point, hung up the phone, went back to work. Um and, and, then,
6: he, and he said, did, did he not say something to the effect that we really don't like when people don't join the union and that there were two other people in the pottery building who didn't join the union, as you said, nothing could happen to them. And then he said, I don't want anything bad happening because you're yeah. not joining. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. Wow.
7: Yeah. So it's very passive aggressive, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. sort of threats. Um, but, see, I, I hung up the phone, man. It was uh, pretty over that conversation at that point. Um, and then the following week or the end of that week, I can't remember, um, There's a Friday night, and they posted up the... I actually had a buddy come up to me. Have you seen the posters all around Kohler Building? <laughs> and then uh, saw the posters that had been posted on Facebook, um, basically calling <laughs> me out individually for actively refusing to join the union.
6: Yeah, this um, this is an interesting sign, and you'll see it at MacGyverInstitute.com. Uh, we reported on this story last week, but the sign uh, on the back of the punch clock, right? It's very conspicuous. Yep. This is where yep. you go to punch out, punch in and punch out. And so everybody in the pottery plant goes there, uh, every hourly employee, and... Uh, The sign praises 19 Kohler workers who had started recently paying union dues each name accompanied by a gold star and then it says a few scabs Decided to go non-exempt the union sign proclaimed and at the bottom. It declared in red Pottery member that refuses to join the union and Josh's name Uh, is right there josh Hare, machine cast operator the union sign boldly stated is not a union brother what did you think when you saw that sign um i laughed actually um
7: (laughs) (laughs) it's uh i find the whole thing kind of petty and ridiculous i mean i've had a lot of people too oh it's like high school all over again you Mm. know people just can't leave these ridiculous things to themselves and
6: Yeah, it does have that high school feel about it, certainly. But, um, um, you know, there's, as you said, there's certainly a feeling of of threat and intimidation behind all of this. We'd hate to see you get hurt, those sorts of things. Now, uh, I should add that uh, the union president, uh, Mr. Taylor had told MacGyver Institute that the union was not responsible for that sign. If it had been responsible, there would have been the you know the union label on it, that sort of thing. And uh, he claims that, uh, well, basically he claims you are not telling the truth, that uh, that conversation as you have described it never occurred, that he basically walked up to you on the floor and said uh, these are the benefits of joining and uh, you said you weren't interested so you just walked away and you both went about your business. Uh, What do you say to that?
7: Um, Well, when he rebuttaled too, he also said that he was walking the floor of Kohler all the time as well, Um, which I mean if this stuff is posted all over and it clearly has, I mean you have to have information through the union to know who's all joined and all that sort of stuff as well um and it's not like it's scribbled on a piece of paper i mean this is a thought out poster posted all around the building so i mean someone put thought and work into making this um thinking it's just some random employee i don't think is right <laughs> um
6: yeah yeah and then what do you what do you say about uh his version of the the conversation now Maybe that uh, you know when he talked to you on the floor that was one thing, but I, you, know, you had the, as you had told me, you were at your station at your job working when the phone next to the station rang and and uh, the union steward said you got to take this call. It's from the union president. Correct? Yeah. Yep. And so that's when this conversation about uh, when uh, you said Talo, told you we don't like it or uh, right. folks don't like it when you don't join the union. That That's when that occurred, correct? Right,
7: right. And that I found all a little bit ridiculous. That had been, before then it was all pretty passive. Um, you know, them telling me I'd, it was a good idea for me to join the union. But yeah, that's when it got um, a bit out of control. Um, and I had talked to management after that too, um, asking them what to do. And they're like, you know, you can't, we can't talk about the union at all, but, um, you know, I think... And they even told me at that point, they're like, they don't want to toss harassment out there, but honestly, we think that you'd have a good case for it at this point.
5: Mm-hmm.
7: Um, and still, I mean, I didn't want to deal with any of that. So still at that point, I hadn't said anything. Uh, but then shortly after, they posted these posters, um, which that was enough at that, po- <laughs> at
6: that point. Yeah, and you, you had told me last week, you said you know, for me, you said you could handle it, yeah. uh, but you said you felt bad for the, the people at Kohler who don't want to be a part of the union. They don't want to pay the dues, but they yeah. want to deal with the harassment. So all of a sudden they're doing something they don't want to do. Uh, I would say that, that that's pretty clear harassment when they, they don't want to deal with any of the, you know, the uh, intimidation or the threats or the the constant nagging, even, of the union to get them right. to join.
7: Right. And, you know, I've talked to people who've been there for two, three years, and I've talked to people that have been there for, like, 20, 25 years. Um, and it's the same from both sides. You know, they've been paying you union dues for this long. And, I mean, they've told me, they're like, I'm glad for what you're doing. Um, like, we haven't seen anything the union's been doing, but we don't want to deal with you know, not paying dues and then having to go through what you're going through. Um, So, yes, mostly I'm doing this just to get the word out of what goes on. Um, Hopefully give courage to those who, you know, don't want to join and maybe need that little push.
6: (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. Now, have you received or gotten any pushback from the union steward, the union president to union members since you went public with this?
7: Um, at work, no, I haven't. Um, I work on second shift uh, with only a few people, so um, none of that has been as bad. Um, so, no, work's been all right, and I've had I mean management stands behind me and does what they can, so it's been – work has been all right.
6: Good. So you haven't had yep. any repercussions for – Telling your story about uh, what's happening with the union and what appears to be some very coercive methods of trying to get you to join.
7: No, no, my stewards have backed off. I've been talked to about the union since any of this started.
6: Well, maybe that maybe they are starting to get the message. You do yeah. have, you would it would seem you do have some recourse here in um, if you wanted to file a complaint. Are you at that position? Uh, what what do you plan to do next?
7: I'm not really sure what to do next. Um, you know, I don't, I'd rather not get a bunch of lawyers involved and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but meeting with them just to see, you know, what's my course of action if any of this continues and any of that sort of stuff. So,
6: gotcha. Finally, what would you say to someone who is in your shoes, the shoes you were in seven months ago? You started a job, you thought, You would walk in and go about the business of doing a job. You knew that there was a union there and that they would, you know, and have every right to ask you if you wanted to be in the union. Uh, But then, your experiences and what you went through after that, what would you say to a new employee coming in who might not want to join a union either? I would
7: say don't let them bully you into it. Honestly. It's not that bad. The management's gonna stand behind you a hundred percent. I mean, do what you feel is right. I feel that's what I've done through all this, and it's turned out well so far, I guess. Um, yeah. Just you know, if you don't want to join, don't join. It's not worth it. <laughs> You're just gonna be stuck with all the rest of the people paying union dues for twenty plus years and getting nothing out of it. So,
6: very good. Well, I want to say this in context. It's very important. Anybody listening to us know this, and this is something that the UAW ought to know. Wisconsin is a right-to-work state, has been since 2015. Yes, there have been challenges. Those challenges have failed. Josh and anybody else out there does not want to join a union, does not have to join a union. You do not have to join a union. You do not have to pay dues. That is the law of the state of Wisconsin. No matter what anybody from any union, organized labor, ever says, you have the ability to join a union, you have the the ability to decide to not join a union. Josh has exercised that right, and that right should be honored. And if it isn't, then that becomes a matter of law. And uh, we'll see where all of this goes from here. Thanks so much for joining us, Josh, on... Uh, our podcast this morning, we appreciate it.
0: Yeah,
7: thanks to you, thank you, enjoy the opportunities.
0: That trouble in Kohler is just a start. Two other unions in the state have decided it's time to sue over Act 10 again. They say hmm. it violates their freedom assembly under the First Amendment. However, the U.S. Seventh Circuit and the Wisconsin Supreme Court have already upheld Act 10 against similar changes. So, Chris, why is this one different? <sighs>
4: It's not. Uh, this is, <laughs> so so th- it's a privileged lawsuit. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not sure. I totally understand the legal argument, and I'm not sure that a judge will <laughs> either. But uh, it's it's basically an attempt to use this. This We'll talk about this Janus case next. Uh, but it's basically an attempt by these two unions, the operating engineers, a couple locals, um, to say if the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, rules a certain way in this Janus case, then that in that means that act 10 will have to be unconstitutional because of the precedent i don't get the legal theory i think it sounds like just another excuse for these unions who are furious with act 10 they're furious that they can't force people to join the union they're furious that they can't force people to pay them, even if they're not in the union. <laughs> and they are going to keep suing and keep clogging up the courts.
0: Until they run out of money.
4: Until they, uh, Well, until money, <laughs> uh, they run out of other yeah.
3: people's
4: money. They run out of other people's money. or they
3: pretty fast.
4: Or they find a judge that finally taps out and says, forget it. I'm tired of all these appeals. I'm tired of all these lawsuits. So just take it. Go. they then to go know, out to the
0: appeals court and then the Supreme Court again.
4: <laughs> yeah. And like you said, this is something, the, Act 10 has been held up twice, and and the U.S. Supreme Court declined to take it up in the final, uh, you know, the final calculation. So Act 10 is constitutional. This is another lawsuit that's a dead end. It's not going to go anywhere, but it's, it's a way for the unions to say, you know, look, we are fighting for the union. We're fighting to get more money. We're fighting to get that situation back where, you know, we can force people to pay in because if, you know, obviously if you can do that, your political power, your influence is much more, and uh, so anyway, that lawsuit will go nowhere. So, what is Janus all about? The Janus case. Uh, so, Mark Janus is a he's a public employee in the state of Illinois, and he is suing AFSCME. So, his case is an interesting case. He he found out when he when he started getting paychecks from the state of Illinois uh, that. There's money taken out by AFSCME, and he's he's like, I'm not part of am not a member of AFSCME. Why are these agency fees getting taken out? And uh, well, it turns out that AFSCME claims to be working on his behalf on a non, in a non-political way. Uh, you know, he's part of the bargaining unit and so on and so he has to pay the union he doesn't want anything to do with the union he doesn't like what the union stands for politically uh so he is he's suing and saying these agency fees are unconstitutional and they force him into an association that he doesn't want anything to do with so this case is basically whether unions can you know extract these agency fees as a condition of employment simply because you're in the same collective bargaining unit as as other people and the issues go beyond, you know, it goes well into, you know, uh, what what is a collective bargaining unit? What is ex- exclusive representation? But the the whole point of it is, can you be forced to pay some uh, an organization and associate with an organization that you disagree with uh, as a condition of employment? And, you know, you look at the su- Supreme Court with Neil Gorsuch on it. it. It was a very similar case, you guys would remember, Re- uh, with Rebecca Frederick suing uh, – mm-hmm the California Teachers Association mm-hmm. last year, yep. uh, unfortunately Justice Scalia passed away and that case deadlocked 4-4. Right. And so this case is a little bit different, but it's similar enough where I think a lot of people who stand on the side of workplace freedom mm-hmm.
3: Kind of saw it as the next opportunity. They right? see it as the after, next opportunity after the Friedrichs case was deadlocked, right? That
4: deadlocked, and so with Neil Gorsuch now on the court breaking that four-four deadlock, For a sure. lot of people are pretty optimistic that this is that the agency fee that agency fees are going to be a, uh, a relic of the past.
3: Well, anyway, while we are on the topic of national politics and all things going on in our uh, nation's capital, Washington D.C., we have got our lovely interns here with us, and they spent the weekend at CPAC. Kids, what did you see?
1: Uh, So at CPAC, there was a lot of talk about uh, free speech on campuses, which is pretty important, especially uh, with Jake and I being interns. We are both students at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. One thing that actually happened over the weekend was Uh, A school newspaper at UW-Madison posted a column about white supremacy taking over college campuses and included a photograph of an event hosted by Young Americans for Freedom, a very not-white supremacist group last semester featuring Ben Shapiro who is Jewish. I was going to say, Shapiro, yeah. that's, a, that's
0: a good Aryan name. Yes. In, in fact, uh,
1: the, um, the ADL, actually, in 2016, named Ben Shapiro as the number one journalist receiving the most anti-Semitic hate. So that's right. How ironic super is that? fun what irony. Mean, um, and kind of along those lines, it, uh, many people at, the, at CPAC voiced um, concern with college campuses and free speech and people being listed as um, white supremacists is kind of the root cause for all of this. If somebody's a white supremacist, if they're a Nazi, then they have no right to speak because what they're speaking is wrong. So lots of people commented on it. Like I said, uh, Ted Cruz made the comment that uh, our professors are 60s hippies um, forcing <laughs> draconian <laughs> uh, speech laws on us.
4: Uh, you know, on the, on the thing about Nazis, they really choose the broad definition of nazi i mean sure. they call people nazis who are not nazis and then say nazis can't speak because a lot of people agree with that but if you're not actually a nazi right then you know i think that really throws the whole thing I don't think they like,
2: actually care about what Nazi means. I think they're just going for the most vile thing they can think of and right. throwing it at just like racist.
0: Yes, an emotion, a pure emotion. Mm-hmm.
1: What's ironic is you could call somebody a communist, and it doesn't have the same effect. Despite <laughs> okay, yeah,
0: that's <laughs> a point. Communism's cool. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen like some of those mm. trendy handbags?
1: <laughs> you know, I. You know, now that I think about it, I don't actually think anybody died in Soviet Russia. Or, you know, communist China. Yeah. yeah, it was all it was all sunshine communism and rainbows.
3: Killing more people than Nazism. Yeah, Russia. I saw yeah. something on starvation is
4: now a huge thing in Venezuela, too, so sure. thanks a lot, socialism.
2: Yeah, but they have great cheerleaders, I heard. <laughs> they <wonderful.
4: That's>, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oof. Well, yeah. they've got the, the one that we uh, were critical of, uh, uh, Tariq Ali, you remember him? that oh, yeah. got an award from UW-Madison. <laughs> no, no, they, they, they backed out. They canceled out. that. They backed
3: they, down out of that, okay. yeah.
4: That's that is that's right.
5: That, he almost <laughs> did, though. <that>, really <laughs> went away quietly. Yeah, uh-huh. I'm sure that would have
4: been a great
0: celebration, though. I mean... October 2017, 100th year anniversary of October 1917. I don't think that was by accident. Well, what
4: happened in that uh, the Russian Revolution? Yeah. Right? Anyway, back to see Sorry, threw uh, <laughs> a true wrench in that.
0: Uh,
1: Betsy DeVos also spoke about campus free speech, saying that more and more campuses are seeing issues with this. Um, uh, But on the concept of North Korea, um, Mike Pence was actually called out in the media for not standing for North Koreans. And he took the time to address this during his speech at CPAC. Um, He made the comment that the USA doesn't stand with murderous dictators. We stand up to murderous dictators, which was a pretty good response to everything being said about North Korea and the romanticism or romanticization of all that.
2: And I think it was interesting, um, you know, spending some time at CPAC the last four years. um, There's been a a pretty big shift in how they've treated um, the conference and, and the kind of speakers that they're bringing in. Um, I remember back in my freshman and sophomore years as the presidential race was starting to heat up, um, there was a, a really big movement to try to outdo each other on um, different conservative values. Um, and now, since President Trump's in charge, um, I think less people are feel the need to come to the conference, um, which means that it's really, you know, in my opinion, just become Um, a place to tout Trump's agenda. And I think there were some very important issues discussed at the conference this year, like campus free speech. Um, And I think it was a good time to talk about why tax reform was important um, and some of the things that the Trump administration has done very well. Um, but I do think that there there was a interesting shift towards, you know, a more populist agenda. I, I kept making the joke through the week that looking at the the speaker list, that it, it seemed to be more like the populist political action uh, conference, more so than the conservative political action conference. Um, and even when a speaker um, named Mona Sharon, who's a syndicated columnist, um, and she's also a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, when she tried to tout some conservative ideas and, and say basically that, um, that she was worried about the kind of speakers that CPAC was bringing in, people like Marianne Le Pen, um, who's a very well-known populist and has al- allied herself with racists in France, um, that she said CPAC's clearly going off the rails when they invite people like this. They brought um, Milo Yiannopoulos uh, last year until the video about um, child molestation came out, um, and then they you know, pulled his um, invitation. But she said this is a very worrying trend um, with the conservative political action conference um, and it should it shouldn't dominate how people view conservatives um, and she was booed and uh, Constantly for the rest of her speech and they actually had to, to put three armed guards on her um, and walk her out And she said she was amazed um, that. She had to be so worried for her safety among fellow conservatives um, just voicing a little bit of dissent um, right. and saying that there there wasn't um, There there was a troubling you know trajectory with where the conference was going um, and I think it was interestingly reported in the media I think it was talked about a lot which um, I think CPAC always gets a lot of press but this is you know for the first time it's not you rah-rah conservatives There was a lot of um, interesting dissent at the conference this
4: year so the last time I was that the, the one time I was there was 2011 and it was a lot of young people, mostly college kids. And yeah, and, they and, call and, it
2: the conservative spring break. Right. And, and <laughs> <laughs> so I can't disagree with the major geek fest.
4: But it was, you know, it was all it was all Ron Paul. It was all Ron Paul all the time, and you know that was he was the, the dominant Some Tea Party to, days, right?
3: Yeah, off, off the backs of November of twenty ten.
4: Yeah, uh, and so it's a little bit of a different and there's context. the Ted
2: there's the Ted Cruz years too. Sure. and yeah. yeah.
3: Right.
4: So and it you've been there. You said four years. Yeah, this is my fourth oh. year. Wow, oh, that's a lot of money. <laughs> um, but, uh, so would it's you say that, that fine. <laughs> would you say that, uh, the opinion of the attendees, I mean, they're generally still younger people, right?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. So mm-hmm. would you
4: say the opinions and the moods and the attitudes are different now with uh, more of a populist conservatism running the government or, and as you said, Marine Le Pen got God. Marion, it was it's,
3: Marion. It's m- not Marina. Yeah, yeah uh, Marinas
2: mm,
4: name. sophisticated folks. <laughs> I'm from uh, Hill Country. <laughs> I'm from Hill Country. But anyway, so she got uh, so she got booed. Um, so I mean, it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like maybe they're missing the mark. The audience hasn't changed as much as.
2: No, no, no. So, so actually, uh, Marion Le Pen got a lot of cheers. It was this other woman. Um, her name's Mona, Mona Sharon. Mona Char, she was on a yeah. pale, she was on a panel oh. with um, some other journalists um, talking about uh, some of the issues um, surrounding some of these sexual harassment allegations um, over the past year. Um, so she was actually the one that got booed for basically saying that CPAC was missing right. the mark. Right. Um, uh-huh. And I think I think it has shown quite a bit of a shift. And I think um, I would actually say that my freshman year compared to my senior year. Now looking back, I think there were far more. There's been far more students of late that go to these conferences, and there's less people that are super involved in the conservative movement because I think um, the older people are starting to see less of the point. There's no longer so much talk about policy. Um, it's much more just kind of, you know, the, firing
3: people up
7: a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: Which is, it definitely has its place, but sure. at when you you know forego talking about policy, then it doesn't become you know anything useful for anyone there. We're, we're all fired up. that's why we're at CPAC to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, we should be talking about conservative solutions to, to problems that we have. Um, and you know the the breakout panels used to be about you know what kind of flat tax was best, and now they're about defeating eco memes on Facebook, and that was actually <laughs> one of the panels. And you sit back, and I'm like, I'm not gonna go to that panel. Like, uh, I it's some of these things you just. Well,
0: if I would have known that, I would have made you go to that panel. I well, want to know how to well, defeat eco memes. I don't know, Abby. <laughs> did you go to that one? Oh, definitely. <laughs>
2: um, but yeah, I think I think it was an interesting shift this year. That in the past it was you know about real conservative ideas, and now um, yelling about anti-free trade policies and I was sitting back going, where did all the free market people go? Where did, where did all the, you know, traditional values conservatives go and they're totally gone. Um, and I, I don't know if it's just kids that jumped on the Trump bandwagon that go to this conference now or what the deal is. Um, but I definitely think there was a massive shift in not only the speakers that are there, but also, um, the people that attended the conference. And I think it was interesting too, um, just another note on this, that, that apparently the board of CPAC was pretty angry at Matt Schlapp, who runs the conference, about the speaker list that he put together. Um, and Matt Schlapp tried to defend it as much as possible, um, but it seems like even the board of CPAC was a little disappointed by the speaker list that came out. But mm. um, Matt Schlapp is clearly aboard the Trump train, and he's riding it all the way to D.C. every year. So, right.
0: so Jake, what you're telling me is you can't tell me anything about tax cuts from CPAC,
2: not at CPAC, no. no. <laughs> well, right. except for Trump touting touting the record, because I do, I do think they, they talk quite a bit about that. But it seems like uh, the tax cuts was more the t- topic of conversation, less about you know how we can get Keep even going. better than, Keep going, than what, right? we, what we just did. Well,
0: we're going to let Ola tout the record now for uh, our favorite weekly segments.
3: That's right. Ah, uh, well, yes, we're, that's hang right. On.
0: Our, our guy's asleep at the switch, so
4: why don't you do the announcement? That's right. It is time to transition to our weekly update on Tax Cut Armageddon. <laughs> I don't even know if that worked.
3: All right, we'll take it all. <laughs> off. All right. Well, take welcome back to another week of Tax Cut Armageddon, where we give you the latest and greatest in catastrophe news as the country continues to fall apart because the government is taking just a little bit less money from all of us. Small business confidence is up, increasing by five points over the last quarter, according to a new CNBC survey monkey poll of small business owners. It's the first pres- uh, first survey since the president signed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act into law last December, and it shows a significant shift in opinion. Twice as many people said that they expect tax changes to have a positive effect on their businesses, with the number of people expecting a negative effect also falling sharply so Good news there for the administration. And in employer-specific news, Xanti Corporation, which provides printers and softwares for graphics and printing operations, provided employees who had been with the company for over a year with $1,200 bonus checks. Newer employees are also seeing a bonus. I'll buy it a little bit of a smaller one. That'll help more than 100 people employed by the company who also said that it would invest more in internal developments with tax cut savings. Another small employer, Haciendas at Grace Village, which is an assisted living facility in New Mexico, said it would hire as many as 40 more people up from the current 49 people. So that's one company, while it seems small, you know, they are nearly doubling the number of people they employ. Not to mention the salary increases, the bonuses, the additional training that they said those employees would also get. A little bit closer to home, Sheely's Furniture and Appliance of Ohio announced that it would give all 140 employees bonuses, with full-time employees getting $1,000 and part-time workers getting $500. And as Democrats continue to laugh off these measures, perhaps calling them crumbs or something to the like, as as we've covered in the past. One thing that caught my eye in in reading about this story, the COO of Sheely's said, quote, we have never done anything like this before. The general manager said, quote, it was absolutely amazing. We had employees crying from joy. Uh, Clearly that (laughs) condescension of crumbs and table scraps doesn't mean much to the people who are thrilled to put an extra payment on that mortgage, that loan, or even maybe go on vacation or something like that.
0: You know? See now, Jake and Abby, she didn't even go to CPAC and look at all that great information she just had for us on tax cuts. <laughs> I feel genuinely enlightened. <laughs> well no, I've done my job. <laughs> now before we let you two go, uh, you hosted a special guest at your uh, at one of your campus events uh, last week who uh, also wound up going to CPAC.
2: Yeah, so um, in addition to uh, interning here, I also run the um, UW College Republican chapter um, on my campus. Um, And we were lucky enough to bring in um, one of my former uh, employers, uh, Romina uh, Boccia of the Heritage Foundation, Um, I interned in her department, um, which is the Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation um, this past summer, and uh, actually studied taxes, so, um, you know, just keep going on that line. Um, But yeah, she came to campus and talked about the growing national debt um, and the horrible budget deals that we get every cycle, um, and she talked about why college students uh, should really care about the the issue, and um, after, Abby and I were lucky enough to sit down with her and have a little bit of a conversation about some of the things that are happening in Washington.
0: That sounds great. Let's have a listen.
2: So one of the things that we found in Wisconsin um, is that we had much of the same from our state legislature and our governor, um, where spending has continued to increase even though conservatives were theoretically in power. Um, Do you think that the federal budget and all the funded mandates um, that have happened in the past few years, do you think that plays a role into why a lot of state governments are also increasing spending Um, or do you think it's more that state governments just have the same incentives that the federal government does?
5: State governments have different incentives. We have um, balanced budget laws and uh, constitutional amendments in many state governments. Um, state governments are subject to the US dollar. They don't get to uh, produce that themselves. Um, so they they face more restraint than does the federal government in their borrowing. That means that they're more reliant on tax revenue in order to finance their spending. That tends to put a limit and downward pressure on what they can spend. This is going to be especially true now after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act because it capped the state and local tax deduction at $10,000. Previously, it was completely uncapped, which actually encouraged higher spending by state governments, because they could tell their higher income residents, don't worry about it, you can write it off on your federal taxes. That's no longer the case. Um, We're seeing similar dynamics at the state level when it comes to what is absorbing state budgets, that's uh, especially healthcare costs. Medicaid is a huge cost factor. And um, the Affordable Care Act, really not very affordable at all, or Obamacare um, has increased uh, Medicaid consumption and eligibility and many states have chosen to expand their Medicaid programs uh, because they wanted that influx of federal cash right now But what they didn't account for is the long-term costs that they will have to absorb in their state budgets. Education is another area where state governments are spending more and more money. And there, we also have other solutions, including education savings accounts and more school choice. Many charter schools are actually able to educate kids more effectively and do so at lower costs. So there are solutions, but they require going up against very powerful interest groups, like the teachers unions for example when it comes to educational choice
0: well you guys did a nice job thank you uh thanks for uh getting that uh that video which you can't see but thanks for the audio we took a a lot
4: of time setting the camera up and getting you guys got a great shot you know it was a really good video but uh very good information by her so and good for you guys for bringing bringing her to campus and so, uh, speaking of, I don't know. I don't have a transition for this, so All right, we'll <laughs> I'm just gonna go into it cold. Uh, the uh, McIver news minute this week was about the minimum markup, which we've talked about extensively uh, around here. It is, you know, obviously an antiquated law from the Great Depression that forces people to pay more money than they otherwise would in a truly competitive marketplace, and uh, we. Uh, had a. Uh, there was well, a hearing. Well, hearing on it.
0: Well, Matt Kittle can tell a story better than you, so that just go to go to the MacGyver News
4: Minute. Now, so you thought you could get by without Matt Kittle for 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 a, a show and forget
6: it. This is the McIver News Minute here's Matt Kittle. The legislature has a chance to repeal large swaths of the state's antiquated minimum markup law, but the effort to kill the latest reform measure is as intense as ever. Last week, for the first time, legislation repealing at least a portion of the law that artificially inflates prices on consumer goods got a hearing. The bill's author, Senator Leah Vukmir and Representative Jim Ott, eloquently stated the bill's aims. It would end the Depression-era prohibition on retailers selling prescription medicine in general merchandise at deep discounts. Opponents, the usual suspects, offered the standard doom and gloom predictions that reforming the law would leave vacant storefronts. Their argument? Competitive pricing is bad for business. But they have much to protect, and consumers aren't top on that list. If they were, they wouldn't be trying so hard to kill legislation that would give consumers a price break. For the MacGyver News Minute, I'm Matt Kittle. For more free market news, log on
4: to And don't forget to catch the MacIver News Minute on News Talk 1130 WISN every Tuesday and Thursday.
0: Well, you know, the MacIver Institute is a free market think tank, so uh, there there was a uh, very free market economics-related item.
4: (laughs) It was on the, yeah, it was debated uh, in the Assembly and in the, yeah, um, the bailout of Kimberly Clark.
0: You just issued a press release this morning about that, so...
4: Well we didn't do a press release on it, but we did a joint op-ed with um, a couple of other groups, Freedom Works and then two in Wisconsin with the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty and the Badger Institute and we all basically we basically said that this is this is a bad precedent it's bad economics it's just a bad idea all around uh, and it's 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 you know something that if you're in, into the free market you, you can't be in favor of uh, using taxpayer money to tell a company that is clearly changing its ter- its business model, clearly changing its direction, uh, and by the way, that this is a company that makes diapers, and there's just less of a demographic demand for products like that.
3: Um, not to mention, the company didn't ask for this legislation, and they didn't either, even right? ask they've, for they've it. They've been noncommittal publicly on it. Right.
0: Well, I'd just like to add a couple things to think about too. Here you have the go- you have a company that says this operation is not profitable. The government says, oh, no, no, you keep going, we'll, we'll, we'll back you up on that. So, first of all, you know, you're, you're completely trying to run, you're, you're trying to run contrary to market forces there. But also, you know, think about the workers. I mean, you think that you're really doing the, the really helping these people out by, you know, making sure that these jobs at Kimberly Clark will, will continue. But they have no future potential at that company, at least not at that position. They aren't going to get big bonuses or raises that operation is unprofitable so sure they have their jobs for now but the next time the the economy takes another downturn and there's nothing the state of wisconsin can tell kimberly clark to keep that that operation open you're going to dump those workers out into a depressed economy right whereas and you know i've told some people about this i've talked to some people about this whole you know this whole uh, plant shutdown they're giving those workers 18 months to find a new job, or that's what they were intending to do.
4: In an wow. economy with a 3% unemployment rate, exactly. I mean, there are jobs out there to be had, exactly. and no one likes to lose their job, but if you're going to lose a job, this is probably the best time to, to be in, a, in searching for a job. And even if you aren't motivated, you got 18 months to find one.
3: Right. <laughs> right. So I think I think ultimately what this speaks to is kind of in the context of this post Foxconn world, where when that deal was was happening, a lot of us in the free market world, you know, did initially take a little bit of a leery eye towards it and said, "This isn't really why we got into this field, right?" As a general principle, we don't believe it's the government's role to pick winners and losers. And you know, you have legislators who have been saying this publicly. I can think of one example, uh, Representative Jarko, who actually voted against the Foxconn deal on the assembly floor, saying. This is a great deal, and I want all of the businesses in my district to get this deal. I don't want to do it one by one. I want them to all have these rules, you know, and so I think Foxconn is kind of a unique situation because it is so incredibly transformative, not only for the state, but for this entire region, but we just got to really be very careful. We can't start walking down this path.
4: Right. Uh, th- so, you know, just to backfill a little information, so the plan was that, or the proposal was that Kimberly Clark would get the exact same deal Foxconn got, which is a 17% jobs tax credit for existing jobs within a certain salary range and a 15% capital investment credit. Sure. And, you know, when Foxconn, like you said, was uh, becoming a thing, right. you know, the, the whole, I think the hope was this was not going to become a slippery slope. Exactly. And now it looks like, I mean, do, all you have to do is threaten to leave the state and you get a an enhanced uh, taxpayer package, uh, that's yeah. not a precedent that it's we want to set. It's concerning. Well, it's concerning, to say the least. Yeah, right.
0: and I mean, again, not, not to uh, justify it, but I mean, you, you do have a huge, you know, contract between these two companies. Sure. Foxconn is on the up and up, and yeah. Kimberly Clark was, hey, this is not profitable, there's no future in this. Right. Oh, keep doing it anyway.
4: Well, as always, uh, we appreciate your listening. That's going to wrap up another McIver Report. Uh, as always, don't forget to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, and or Google Play. You'll find the links right on our website. And please do follow the podcast on Twitter, at Report. Most importantly, tweet at us and let us know your thoughts and share us with your family and friends. And let us know how much you really enjoyed having Abby and Jake here.
0: Absolutely, or else we'll never have them back again. Yeah, they're they're, they're,
4: they're both on Twitter too, so we'll we'll get, we'll put their hashtags or their uh, their at their Twitter names handles. handles that's it. <laughs> it. I'm 31 now. I'm not supposed to be able oh to my use. God, you man. <laughs> All right. Well. And so you guys will get harassed by the Twitter by the the, the, the liberal Twitter trolls too.
3: Welcome, well, welcome. So
0: thank you very much for being with us, and we will be with you again next week.
4: See you then.